This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor for Federal News Network and it's that time once again this quarter for our update and looking at all things government contracting. Uh, Jason, welcome to the show. Roger, it's always a pleasure to be here. Well, um, you know what? What are we? We're in the in the springtime of 2022, and there is a lot going on at GSA. So I think I think that's where we'll start and just go down through some of the different things that GSA is working on or has addressed. And I guess the first one I wanted to ask you about is um, Section 876. That's the provision that provided GSA with the authority to essentially not have to negotiate price on the scheduled contracts and on other, you know, IDIQ contracts. And GSA is used it with on Astro. Um, they're probably going to use it on Polaris, if I recall, is or it is being used on Polaris and on other contract vehicles you know, across its programs, but it made a decision not to apply, you know, 876 to eliminate that price negotiation at the contract level. They made a decision that, no, they were going to continue to negotiate and address price at the contract level. Your thoughts? I was surprised by the decision, and I'll offer a couple of reasons why. First of all, the schedule seems like the perfect place to apply this authority that Congress gave them. Uh, you, you've seen them do it with Astro, the big kind of UAV emerging technology contract. They're talking about doing it potentially with other contracts like the follow-on to Oasis, the Schedules Mac uh, uh, contract, multiple work contract. And, and it just seemed like the Schedules program was the specific place that this should go, given the fact that nobody buys list price. I mean, Roger, we, we joke about it, but the Schedules are a ceiling, not even a floor. They're a ceiling. It's like going into your car dealership and saying, what's MSRP? I'll, I'll, I'll pay below MSRP. Everyone, no one pays MSRP. So why are we all hung up on price? And I was a little surprised by that decision. Uh, I think that this is something that GSA, to be honest, may need to re- revisit or, or relook at once they get a little bit of, of time and, and understanding of how 876 works with Astro and some of these other contracts. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I was surprised by the decision. Yeah, I think, you know, from what I understand, there's a lot of um, stakeholders that said, no, you need to keep price, you know, in the negotiation of price at the contract level. It's a benchmark for customer agencies using the schedules, as well as I think senior executives of GSA favored uh, keeping the price negotiations and fair and reasonable price at the contract level in place. But it's always a balance, right? And I think you make a good point that moving forward as, you know, they get data on Astro and other contract vehicles that are going to utilize authority and not, you know, use price as an evaluation factor at the contract level or negotiate price, uh, that data could help inform decisions. This this decision shouldn't be 
a final decision by any means. It should be something that's revisited periodically to see, to make sure, you know, GSA is um, providing a streamlined, effective tool for customer agencies. And I think the big concern that I would have if I was GSA is along these lines is just whether it's going to be that over time, will the schedules be relevant to the market? And what I mean by that is that new technologies, new services, new capabilities are coming to the commercial market all the time. And 876 gave GSA flexibility to add new pro- new services, new services in a, in a, in a very streamlined, efficient manner um, and make those available for customer agencies. You know, there's a lot of challenges around the negotiation of scheduled contracts these days. And the question is the speed of need and the speed or access to the market and whether or not GSA is going to need to think, of, you know, a compensator do other things to try to address that because they're not taking advantage of a truly streamlined authority that was granted to them. I think your your point is really interesting that they are constantly and have constantly over the last 20, 25 years looked at the schedules and tried to improve it. And it's been a bit of a slog to improve the schedules. And, you know, it's not that they haven't changed. It's not that it's not the same schedules that we've seen in the 90s when you were at GSA or when you were just a young right. guy at GSA. But I think that the, the rate of change that came, has come to the schedules has been slower than I think most people would want, including I think people at GSA would agree to that, to say we, we would like to make change more quickly. And I think 876 was an opportunity to really, as you, as you said, continue that innovative ways. One thing that always surprised me about the schedules, and, and I've heard this in my entire career that I've covered GSA, nobody ever buys that first price. GSA talks about this all the time. It's always a quantity discount. You know, one widget is a dollar, 10 widgets is 95 cents, 100 widgets is 90 cents. That's They've talked about this forever. So again, so what does price matter? Why is price important? And and I would maybe argue, Roger, that the, the concern is that change is hard. So it's not so much that they think price is the end-all be-all because they've said plenty of times over the last 25 years that price really doesn't, is, is only a starting point. Everything drops. So what what do they have to get used to? What, what do, do agency customers need to understand? It sounds to me like there's an education process that has to happen. And, and maybe it's a pilot. You know, again, we, we hear a lot about pilots that never go anywhere. But maybe it's a pilot that GSA has to do to prove this out with one schedule or a part of a, a couple special item numbers or, or something to that effect. Well, I, th- I mean, it's a good point. I think the the issue fundamentally is i think from gsa's outreach to you know customers in particular you know there's as a reliance on that contract level pricing to assist in benchmarking for pricing at the task order level you know the question is you know there should be adequate price competition you get three offers you should be able to determine it you know fair and reasonable on that basis but it's it's you know it's viewed as a actually is a streamlining tool having a price at the contract level at the order level for for purposes of evaluation. I think GSA, as it thinks strategically, needs to think about how to be flexible in getting new new services on contract, which H76 would help them do. But what are the tools that it needs to provide its customers to, I guess, 
leverage or provide the capability to you know to you know determine fair and reasonable pricing without having that contract level price i mean they need to think about what services or research capabilities they could provide in that context to support it and maybe it's transactional data reporting in some manner that's provided to customer agencies and the last point i'd kind of make on this is that the flip side of this on the product side frankly is the e-commerce pilot and that authority because there again you know price is not negotiated it's you know there's you know you the e-commerce pilot the e-marketplace pilot that's going on right now is you know below the micro purchase threshold and agencies can order and buy and the price is not negotiated so what does that do that streamlines things for people and gets access to stuff quicker and sooner and uh, you know that i think could have positive pressure on the schedules on the product side as well you know and i think we should talk about perhaps next um the expansion of the e-commerce platform you know as we move to a follow-on contract we're about 18 19 months into a three-year pilot and gsa is already you know determined that they're going to move forward and they did a recent rfi um seeking feedback from industry and so i want to start there and what your thoughts on about the e-commerce you know pilot where it is and where gsa seems to want to take it there's a couple things i'd point out on the e-commerce i think congress got wind or somebody in congress got wind that they were only testing the one approach and i think they said no 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 you're going to test all three and even though gsa made the case about why they didn't want to i think congress came in and said we want you to because we think there's more so i don't know if it was a lobbying effort by certain businesses or some sort of somebody else within government wanted them to do it it's you know it's never clear how that those things happen but i think the rfi shows that they are at least saying okay what else is out there how have things changed since we first looked in this in 2016. I mean, so it's been six years since they first started this effort. They put out those first RFIs. So how has the market changed? How has the approaches changed? So I'm interested to see what comes from it and where GSA goes next with it. Uh, I, I think they've had to take a half a step back from the e-commerce pilots and proof of concepts. It's been semi-successful, somewhat successful. I think that they've you know lowered the market that they thought that they could capture from 6 billion to 500 million. And that's telling that tells me that, well, when they've gotten really dug deeper, how much are agencies really going to spend this way? How much do they want to spend this way? So I think, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if they decide that, Hey, here's some other approaches that can capture more of the market and then therefore provide better services to agencies. But, uh, you know, Roger, it's, um, they're good ideas that, that sound good, but then when you get down to it, it becomes much more difficult to to push out the door and to to successfully say, "Hey, we should continue or not." So, I, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question per se. I think there's a lot of unknowns. Uh, I think it's it's good that GSA put the RFI out. Let's see what comes from it. Yeah, I think the market is definitely bigger than the 500 sizing that GSA. You know, made somewhere between the 500 million and the six billion. I I don't know exactly, but. It, I think GSA may have overreacted there in terms of the, you know, the scope. And I, I do think it's a positive that GSA is moving forward with a follow-on. I think you touched on a key issue, and that is the expansion. I think success 
for the program, you know, is bringing the commercial market to bear. And they've done part of that with the e-marketplaces. And I think expanding it will, you know, improve, you know, access to it. And also, I think, bring more customers to it for all the participants, you know, in the e-commerce follow-on contract, whatever that may look like. But I will say this, it's pretty clear under what Congress has done is that GSA is required by law to test the other two models along with the e-marketplace model. You know, the e-commerce model and then the e-procurement models are both ones that GSA identified along with the e-marketplace. And the recent NDAA language basically said, you have to test the models that you identified pursuant to this, you know, to 846, the underlying, you know, initial e-commerce statute. So, GSA hasn't been clear on that, but I think that's going to be a big area where, you know, folks in those other two categories are going to say, hey, wait a minute, if you're not going to include us, that's a problem for GSA and, you know, is inconsistent with Congress's direction. So anyway, we're up on the break. Jason, when we come back, we'll continue looking at some of the key goings on at GSA over the last uh, six months or so. And then we can turn to some of the other government-wide issues that w- that has have gotten our attention over the last uh, few weeks. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's executive editor for Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's executive editor for Federal News Network. We're talking about... Right now, we're talking first segment about GSA. We're going to continue talking a little bit about GSA and what's going on there. And uh, the next topic on our list, and it is a, it's quite a list. GSA's got a lot going on, is um, you know, addressing inflation, and particularly in the context of the schedules, uh, contracts, and the uh, memo that uh, Senior Procurement Executive Jeff Kosis and Mark Lee, who's the head of policy at FAS, put out as guidance for streamlining and re- removing some of the barriers or procedural barriers or hurdles for processing price increases uh, on the on folks' schedule contracts. You have thoughts on that? What are you I seeing? Was, what are you hearing? What am I hearing? Um, they're yeah. not moving fast enough. How about that? Uh, but to give their credit, to their credit, they did recognize the 8% inflation that we're all suffering from needed to be addressed. It was an issue contractors brought to their attention and, and the memo came out fairly quickly. I, I would love to say I got some credit for that because my story came out and then like a week later their memo came out, but I know how memos work in government and, and it's never that quick. So uh, uh, I will not take that much credit for it, Roger, but um, uh, maybe your blog was the one that, that got them going. I don't know. Well, I, I think it's still, as you point, it's still, you know, it's a work in progress. I mean, it is in some ways, uh, you know, it's like, turning an ocean liner to move the the organization you know holistically to focus on these things and but it's a real issue because i you know i still i heard companies and they're lose some companies are losing tens of thousands of dollars a week based on sales where the you know they're just at a loss because their acquisition cost for a product is higher than the sale price on the schedules even at the ceiling price jason and other companies even in, in more than that, hundreds of thousands of dollars a week. So, you know, it's gratifying to see GSA focusing on it. And I know a lot of work went into the memo. You know, the challenge GSA always has from a management perspective is getting that 
out to the contracting uh, folks, the acquisition workforce that spread out all over the country and get them to, to sort of move in unison and with some urgency. So I know they're working on that, but it, it still remains a challenge. I think it's something that I think GSA is taking the lead on in government. I know that there was a hearing recently with uh, some of the DOD folks and members of Congress asked about the inflation issue. And DOD said, you know, basically we haven't really planned well for it. We expected inflation to be about 4%, but then they, you know, at 8%, that's going to impact their their buying power, but they've not kind of figured what that impact's going to be. And Roger, you know, I'm no math person, right? Uh, that's why I'm a journalist, but we know that uh, uh, 8% inflation and 4% planning means there's an 8%, there's a 4% delta there. And uh, that, that can be a lot for, you know, when you're talking about DOD's buying millions of dollars worth of equipment or services or the like. And I think GSA is good that they got ahead of it. I think what GSA needs to do is, you know, kind of push this down. And, and I know it's something we'll talk about later, but I think that's it's missing. This is where having an OFPP administrator, someone at that bully pulpit, is being missed. And it has nothing to do with the folks at OFPP, but having that person there to, to talk about this, to push down this information, whether it's at GSA or DOD or across the government, is, is really a, a shortfall. Um I'll be interesting to see if GSA needs to extend this inflation memo beyond, I think, September 30th is when it sunsets right now. I think that that's another key date to look for. I, yeah, and I, I I mean, given the economic conditions and, you know, inflation, and I think most people say it's not going away. It's not transitory anymore. Um, it's going to be here for a while um, until supply chains adjust and other things take place. So I can't see them just dropping that memo. I could, I could see it being extended because, you know, people are still getting price increases and people have to submit multiple, you know, requests over, you know, even month, less than a month in some cases. So anyway, so let's turn to another GSA topic. And that's, I know it's one of your favorite things, BPAs, those pesky blanket purchase agreements. And uh, GSA has you know, talked a lot about the Ascend BPA, they're calling it now, which is, I guess, their government-wide cloud uh, effort. You've been focusing on this a fair amount. Do you have any thoughts? It's still early in the process, so let's withhold any uh, strong opinions to say it's good, bad, or indifferent. This is something GSA has tried before in the early days of cloud. Roger, you probably remember the email as a service cloud that never went anywhere or the contract that never went anywhere. They they tried to put out a series of, of cloud RFIs to set up these kind of contract vehicles that agencies can buy from. And, and what GSA learned and what other agencies showed them was, well, they want cloud, but they also want the services to integrate. So they were going to Alliant and Alliant 2 to buy a lot of these. So I think Ascend is trying to kind of address those challenges because it's not just about buying just cloud, but buying all the services that are connected to cloud technology as well. The question, again, has to come is, is there still a desire for it? Are agencies already far enough down a path? And we know who some of those cloud providers are, right? Whether you're looking at enterprise clouds like from Microsoft or Amazon or Google or Oracle or you're looking for very specific cloud platforms like a Salesforce or a ServiceNow, are we further down this path enough to say, is a vehicle really needed? Is it really are all the same companies going to bid on this to get on that they already are on the schedule contract? They already are on Alliant or have some sort of connection back 
to Alliant 2, and we know GSA is planning for Alliant 3. Is it better just to kind of use Alliant 3 as that vehicle versus another new contract? So it's unclear exactly why there's this need for Ascend. Uh, we know GSA is, is reviewing some RFI responses that from last fall, and I think that's also going to help them direct how Ascend can be developed and, and what's it going to look like in, in the end. But I, I think that the big question, Roger, around this is, is what's it going to be that's not already out there? And, and I'm not sure we know that answer yet. Well, I think you're touching on, you know, indirectly, but somewhat directly as well, a key point about the overall, the, these government-wide BPAs, you know. So GSA is kind of caught betwixt and between, you know, in the context of government-wide BPAs, you know, that are made available to customer agencies. Because GSA is not a requirements holder in this context, right? The requirements holder are the customer agencies over, you know, whether it's DHS, DOD, you know, VA, Department of State, they have the cloud requirements. And, you know, they are in a better position to issue a BPA with based on their requirements and compete it and get better pricing and terms of service or whatever than GSA is because GSA is essentially going to have the schedule contract then it will have a BPA. Then if a customer agency chooses to use it, they'll do a task order competition amongst the BPA holders. So you've got three levels there. That's vertical contract duplication. And one of the things that the regulations um, attempted to address around this, you know, in FAR 8.4 is, you know, there is a requirement in, in the ordering procedures for BPAs that the agencies, if it's a multi-agency BPA, which a government-wide BPA obviously is, is a requirement to list the agencies that are going to use it along with their requirements. And so who is GSA going to get to sign up with the BPA and include their requirements at the point they compete this, right? That's a big question. And, you know, they can't walk away from those regulations. Are they going to do a deviation? So deviation just, just make, would emphasize the point that they have no requirements, right? So I don't know what, how they're, they're caught betwixt in between. And, you know, I think to the extent of BPA, the other thing, important thing to think about is to the extent there are terms and conditions in a BPA, that customers really like, and that's one of the reasons you're doing it. Perhaps those should be at the contract level, you know, so that, you know, the agencies could go directly to the contract, negotiate their own task orders or own BPA agreements based on their requirements. That's the big challenge that GSA has around these things that, you know, they're really going to have to think through a lot. You and I have debated several times on this show about the BPAs <laughs> on top of schedule, so I will not go down that path again. I will not get on a soapbox and, and tell you how I think it's a ridiculous approach, uh, even though you've explained to me very eloquently why sometimes, sometimes maybe it works. I think one of the things GSA and, and I think industry really needs to play a role here is, does it make sense for industry to rebid on something they've already bid against, meaning they already are on the schedule and maybe this is, goes back to our conversation about 876 a little bit, is not just 876 itself, but this idea of if there's new entrants into the market and GSA wants to make sure those new entrants have a place and an ease of, you know, agencies have an easy way to get to them, then maybe it's, it's about fixing the on-ramp piece to the schedule for new, innovative, small businesses versus 
creating a new contract that maybe somebody will bid on, maybe they'll get work, maybe they'll know it exists. So I think there's too many questions here, and I think there's a, a maybe a simpler path to getting to the same result, which is innovation, ease of use for cloud, all the pieces and parts that come with cloud, the, the support services that you need, the integration services, and as well, uh, I'll go back to Roger Alliant 3 as, a, as another approach to this versus another contract vehicle. Yeah, just to finish up on that, the bottom line, Jason, for the BPA is the bottom line. I hear it repeatedly from you know companies, what's the return on investment? I have to show my executive team that there is a requirement there that we're chasing that if I spend BNP, I have a chance to win something and get return on that investment. So anyway, so we'll take our break right now. We'll come back. We'll continue the discussion and we'll expand beyond GSA a little bit and start talking about some of the other interesting topics out there uh, in government contracting. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for Federal News Network. And um, we're going to talk about government-wide contract issues. But first, I, you know, I'd be remiss if we didn't uh, finish up uh, GSA with, uh, you know, get your observations with regard to the Polaris procurement and where it currently sits. The news that broke maybe just in the last week or two, Roger, is the protest submitted by BD Square to GAO has been dismissed by GAO. And the dismissal, as you know how this works better than I do, but GAO dismissed it because GSA told GAO, a lot of G's here, right, that they would take corrective action. And that corrective action seemed to satisfy GAO saying, okay, that makes sense to us. This protest will be, I I don't know what the proper legal term is, Roger, but moot now. Or they some just, Latin phrase, I don't know. No, no, no that's okay. You're, I'm no longer practicing law. I, I, <laughs> they just dismissed it and moved on, right? Okay. <laughs> Based on the agency taking corrective action. I thought you were so. going to pull out a Latin phrase for me, Roger. I was no, all excited. No. Uh, Habeas corpus, so, is that it? Uh, yeah, I can't even, I can't even <laughs> pronounce anything Latin to start with. So. <laughs> but the fact that they dismissed it means GSA is going to take action. And there was some rumor that uh, Robin Carnahan had mentioned what some action that they'd be taking shortly at a recent event, but uh, I can't see, I've not seen anything on uh, Sam.gov as of, as of today saying that they've made changes, but you know, we're watching out for those changes. And, and just as a reminder, this goes back to the mentor protege joint venture requirements where GSA made a change about a week before bids were due for Polaris, which is a huge small business government-wide acquisition contract, replacing the Alliant 2 small business debacle that GSA went through over the last few years. And the change they made was saying, if you are part of a mentor-protege joint venture, the large business part of that mentorship can submit all past performance, all relevant experience, which, because this was a self-scoring system to you know, the top 100 companies with the highest scores, whatever the number was, would make it. A lot of small businesses not part of the joint venture or a, a mentor-protege felt like they had, no chance of, they had no chance of winning because of the strength of the large business partners were bringing. So this change that GSA made the, uh, caused a huge uh, buildup of, of frustration, concern uh, that they've heard, and the, including this one-bid protest, and GSA seems to be pulling back. How will they pull back? 
whether they're going to say some sort of combination of three and two, three large, two small, or three small, two large. It's yet to be seen. But it's, I think it's good news that at least they've recognized that the, the change they made went a little too far. We're still going to wait for details, and then we'll have a better idea of really what this impact will be. And I, I'm pretty sure there there's case law, and I, I think it's fundamental that you've got to evaluate the small business part of the, you know, the of the mentor protege, you know, venture. Um, you know, you can evaluate the large business part, but you've got to do something with regard to the small business part in terms of evaluation. And, and you know, I think you know, uh, you know, GSA rightly took a step back, and you know you know, based on the protests and is going to, you know, seek to address the, the protests and, you know, move forward. So, which is, you know, part of the procurement process, this happens all the time, you know, where an agency can t- take a corrective action to address, you know, some legitimate concerns raised via bid protest. So uh, I, I see this as, you know, at the end of the day, positive developments moving forward, um, and especially, I think it's a pro small business approach um, to try to address this up front and, and work out, you know, some language that I think was clearly problematic. I mean, um, after after what happened with small line, small business, this was a lot, this was both surprising to a lot of people, but yeah. also really disconcerting. I mean, I, I talked to one small business owner who's not part of a mentor protege joint venture, and they spent something like $80,000 over the last 18 months on, on bid and proposal costs. And they were close to saying, why why bother? It's a waste of my money now going forward. And I've already wasted a huge chunk of change. So I, I think that's why, you know, good, kudos to GSA for understanding the impact they had uh, or potentially could have it. But but why we got here is, is one of those questions. And Roger, I always I don't get why someone made right. a decision that was just so pushed that pendulum way to the right or to the left. It's just crazy. Well, you'll have to, you know, you have to, you know, you exercise your journalistic chops there and see what you can find out on the road there, Jason, on that. So let's turn to some other topics now, just outside of GSA. <laughs> and I know one of your favorite things is to ask where the OFPP administrator is. So I'm going to ask you, where is the OFPP administrator? That is a question that is uh, has no answer. I think he's stuck in limbo. Uh, just as a reminder, the president nominated Benim Gebri back in August of 2021. Uh, it was submitted to the Congress back in August of 2021, and it hasn't moved. And, and the, the question remains, uh, why? Why hasn't Congress moved on it? Why hasn't the Homeland Security Government Affairs Committee had a nomination hearing is there something going on? Is there concerns? Uh, Roger, I know that OPP does not get a lot of attention in the, in the broader scheme of things. And I think that maybe, you know, the folks in, on Capitol Hill would say, we're working on other things. There are other things that, that are, 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 are a higher priority. But I think it's a big mistake and I think it's short-sighted. And, you know, going back to the discussion we had last segment on inflation having a, someone in, in this bully pulpit talking about the impact on inflation on, on, on agencies and on contractors would be really helpful, both to get the word out, but also to, to drive home the message. Uh, I think this administration is doing a ton of stuff around Buy America. Uh, we just saw a new memo on the infrastructure bill that came from the Infrastructure Act and, and, and some of the requirements around interagency and inter and with intra-agency coordination among acquisition and technology 
and, and CFOs. Having, again, that leader there would, would be really helpful for a lot of these efforts. It, it always amazes me, Roger, why administrations don't put enough emphasis on this position. You know, I, I don't think we've really seen that since the Obama administration named Dan Gordon. And, and you know, since then, we've had a lot of turnover, a lot of change and, and not a lot of attention to it. Yeah, I think Leslie Field, you know, the career person, deputy, you know, has spent a lot of time as the acting OFPP administrator over the years, perhaps more often than not in terms of whether there's been, a, you know, a political put in place. It's kind of interesting. Uh, the next topic I wanted to talk to you a little bit about is the infrastructure bill. Um, and I know some guidance came on that focusing on Buy America and how improper payments and just sort of the oversight context around the, you know, infrastructure bill, your thoughts, have, you know, this is kind of similar, it seems to me. And it's when they do these kind of big bills and I go back to the Recovery Act and, you know, after the financial crash in the 2008, 2009 timeframe and the Recovery Act, there's lots of Buy American Act provisions in the, in that bill in terms of supporting infrastructure and in the context of uh, creating an IG office as well, you know, to oversee the spending or check on it, that sort of thing. This is standard operating procedure in a lot of ways for this type of legislation. First of all, this was a 14-page memo OMB put out roughly end of April. It's really just the implementation side of this infrastructure bill. It's it's actually, I think, that the second memo, there was the Buy American piece, and then this one is really all about oversight, uh, what they call advancing effective stewardship of taxpayer resources and outcomes. And this focuses on a lot on improper payments, making sure that you are delivering the funding that we that agencies receive from the infrastructure bill to the right organizations, to the right people, to the, making the, the big difference. I think that's going back to what you said, some of the lessons learned they've they've got from the Pandemic Recovery Act, from the Economic uh, Recovery Act back in 2009, that, that these teams, as this interagency and intraagency discussions and sharing of information, uh, it really does make a big difference to, to limit improper payments and, and, and limit, you know, ensure that there is an effective way that this money is being spent. I think there's a couple things that stand out to me. First of all, uh, I saw some other associations, not the coalition, as far as I know, wrote letters to OMB expressing concerns over some of the Buy American provisions that they added in there. Uh, there's, there's the Buy American provisions on steel and iron and some of those types of areas. But they've also wrote one on this latest memo, and they're actually asking them to rethink some of their approaches because it really puts a huge burden on the contracting community that's trying to get this out the door. And part of this issue, Rogers, you know, is to make progress today, not make progress in three, five, seven, nine years. The Obama administration called it shovel-ready projects. I don't think anyone uses that term anymore, but they do want to be able to say this money went to these things and it made a difference this quickly. So, Roger, again, I'll just go back to there's still a lot of questions that are out there, a lot of things that are happening that I think we, we don't know about. And, um, you know, it it's a, puts a bigger burden on the, the federal workforce as well. And we can't un- underestimate the importance of the training, the understanding of, of the memo. And again, having an OFPP administrator being out there talking about this, working specifically with, uh, with uh, Cecilia Drake, who runs the Biden administration's Buy American office, 
they're missing an opportunity to really message better and, and explain what's going on. Yeah, and you know, some of this too is also money gets going to be distributed to the states and you know for certain infrastructure, pro, you know, roads, bridges, and that sort of thing. So there's a lot going on, and there's a lot that's entailed with federal money when you get it, and the you know, and your responsibilities and the oversight of it. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts to this, and and I think you make a good point about the urgency of it. If to the extent you want to get things moving and have shovel ready projects the guidance around it in terms of implementing and executing is going to be critical. You know, that framework is going to be critical to the success and moving quickly. So it's, we'll, we'll definitely be watching that. So Jason, we're, we're up on our last break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about the industrial base and maybe a little bit about suspension and debarment report that came out. You are all listening to off the shelf on federal news network. I'm Roger Waldron. And my guest is Jason Miller executive editor of Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder. My guest today is Jason Miller, executive editor for Federal News Network. And, you know, we're finishing up our, you know, all things government contracting show here. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is a recent, you know, Bloomberg, you know, opinion piece talking about the industrial base shrinking and, you know, the challenges that the federal government has in bringing new companies or access to the commercial. It's the age old thing in some ways, the access to the commercial market. And, you know, there's less small businesses doing business with the government. That's a you know piece of it, but also, you know, the number of contractors who support big A acquisition and the number of different sources in some cases are, are become limited in certain situations, even a single company that provides a particular critical capability or material to DOD. Um, and, you know, this opinion piece talks about the risk associated with that. I just wanted to, I know it piqued your interest and just get your thoughts. This is a problem we've seen and been talking about. It feels like Roger for another one of those 20, 25 years. And I think, you know, there's a recent DOD report that they did as well that talks about the industrial base. And they looked uh, much more broadly than I think Bloomberg did. But but long story short is there's a shrinkage that's happening. There's a, a huge mergers and acquisitions that's happening. And I'm not sure, uh, while that's good in some ways for the companies, it's I think it's bad more broadly for the government because of the competition factors. And if you look at, for instance, what the DOD report from February talked about, <laughs> Was and, and this is a lot around um, weapon systems, right? The major tactical missile suppliers have declined from 13 to 3. Fixed wing aircraft suppliers declined from 8 to 3. The number of aerospace contractors since the 1990s have, have gone from 51 to 5, you know, kind of these prime, big, big, massive contractors. And I think there's a lot of concerns there. Now, at the same time, DOD and other agencies, the Homeland Security Department, just as name a civilian one as an example, have really strove to bring in some new companies, whether small businesses or companies that are on the medium size that maybe haven't really done a lot of government work before. And the question is, is it working? And is it really the fact that the federal market is is the problem? Is it the federal approach to contracting is the problem? Or is it just the global market? And something I think you've talked about many times is really the bigger issue here that companies see, well, the government's a small piece of the puzzle, not the piece of the puzzle anymore. And is it really worth our time to go after that market? 
so it's it's really that's the other piece that's that's really causing this decrease in the number of companies bidding. At the same time, Roger, I, I have to tell you, um, every time we think one big company goes away, there's another one that emerges or another one combines to get bigger. So there is some health in the market. I think there's some some pockets where there's big concern, though, especially around DOD. Yeah, I, I, I struggle with um, you know the industrial base and what it is or isn't. The idea that there is this huge commercial market that's where the innovation is driven in the commercial market these days. Let's face it, the federal government is a is a set marketplace in a lot of ways, right? And there are certain economies of scale to be able to produce some of these thing, you know, the these complex weapon systems or platforms that they can only be a limited I mean in certain ways is the market drives you to a limited number of sources just because of the sheer scale of them. And if you win it, you're in, you're good for the next generation, right? For a you know, new new platform, new plane, whatever. If you lose, you're done. It's like so, you know, and maybe from a strategic perspective, there's a way to think about, you know, how to, you know, you know, diversify or you know, ensure you have additional capabilities. You know, we even see this in in the context of supply chain around, you know, pharmaceuticals and COVID experience, right? Lots of things are made lots of other places and relying on a single source in China versus contracting with a company in the United States to maintain capability or excess capability to be able to surge, you know, that's kind of that kind of advanced planning as moving forward, find that right balance between, you know, having the capabilities and the economies of scale of a comp major, you know, manufacturer to deliver a complex system or sets of complex systems while also paying for the capability to have someone else to do it. I, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to figure all that out, but those are just some of the things that I think about in that regard. And, you know, I think we're getting close to the end of the show. I wanted to ask you one more, you know, I mentioned suspension in our environment. I know there's a report out there. Do you have any observations or thoughts um, with regard to the, the patterns or trends we're seeing? I think if I recall, suspe- uh, debarments may be up, but suspensions are down or it's <laughs> kind of out of whack. It is a little bit out of whack. It's it's one of my favorite reports of the year because it really gives you, when you get these kind of broad-based views against uh, about what's happening across government procurement, it, it's just, it's so enlightening in some in so many ways. So uh, to, to your point, the number of suspensions is, is way down um, in, in 2020. Uh, this is down from 722 in 2019 to about 415 in 2020. Uh, the number of proposed debarments is also down from 1437 to 1317. But the uh, number of debarments, you're right, is up from 1199 in 20, 2019 to 1256 in uh, 2020. So uh, not a huge number, not, not a huge percentage of change, but you're right, the big, big changes in terms of numbers that are down. But one interesting, just aside from suspensions, Roger, uh, the high of 722 was the most since 20. Uh, uh, 16, where, and we've seen it come down from 2016. So the 415 is the lowest in, in 11 years. It was at 417 in 20, 2009. What happened in 2009 compared to 2020? Uh, I, I'm not sure what they com- had to make those connections, but, but it is interesting that um, they've come back. They came down such a great deal. Uh, the other thing I'll just offer, and then I think this is an important piece 
is the referrals, uh, the number of, of agencies uh, that have been refer referred to suspension and debarment is way down, down by almost 400 companies. Though, again, 2020 is more equal to 2018, but way down compared to 2017, 2016, 2015, and, and so on and so forth. So I'm not really sure why there are. And then, Roger, finally, the use of administrative agreements is, is has ticked up uh, back uh, up, up to 58 from 54. Again, another way to kind of solve this before it goes to the suspension debarment, uh, you know, more, more critical stage. So all interesting data. You can find it on the uh, acquisition.gov site and under suspension and debarment. So, yeah, perhaps the 2009-2020 data, maybe the similarity is is that it was a uh, period of great uncertainty. So maybe things got, you know, got delayed or, you know, put off, you know, whether it's the financial crisis in 2009 and COVID in 2020. Who knows? But pure speculation on my part. So anyway, I want to thank my guest today, Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. best every day you need proven quality sleep every night science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental emotional and physical health and that's where the sleep number bed comes in and let me tell you ever since i've had it my sleep iq score is just going higher and higher and did you know eight out of ten couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep for many couples Temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.